You can grab a seat and do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the gospel according to John. We are in chapter 1, verses 43 through 251. So with four weeks in chapter 1, at this rate, we'll finish John in five years, and then we'll move on to the next book. Uh, You'll remember that we have been in the gospel of John for four weeks, roughly speaking, in the first chapter in particular. And what most people would agree is that the first chapter of John is sort of the prologue. All of the ideas that John wants to communicate in his actual gospel, he introduces in that first chapter. It's sort of the sort of the primer on everything that John is about to discuss. And so in December, we looked at really the opening verses where John talks about Jesus. The whole gospel is obviously about Jesus. And so he begins before the beginning with Jesus, that this person who was born in Bethlehem is not just any person, but the eternal word of God who became man for us and for our salvation. And then he he shifts his focus to one of Jesus's cousins, John the Baptist, the other John in John's gospel. And he shows us through the lens of John the Baptist, what's what's the right way to respond to this Jesus? If he is everything that John, the author says, what does it look like to to rightly engage with this person? And so we looked at how John the Baptist, when he had come to be convinced of the identity of Jesus, it radically changed his life. He, He began to see himself not as sort of an individual, but as who he was in light of who Jesus is. And so when he's asked the question, who are you? His first response is, I'm not the Christ. And as they continue to ask him questions about who he is, he continues to describe who he is only in light of who Jesus is. So maybe you, over the last few weeks, uh, have found yourself in that John the Baptist position, uh, increasingly convinced that Jesus, as John the author paints him, is in fact who he says he is. Maybe you had that experience years ago when a friend of yours shared the gospel with you over coffee or in between classes in high school, or, or, or maybe you had that experience at summer camp and, and you came to be convinced that the, that the Christian message of the gospel was true. And so you hear all of this stuff about John the Baptist and his deep-seated faith in the person of Jesus, and that resonates with you. But maybe you don't feel that way. Like maybe, maybe none of this sounds true to you, or at the least it sounds like wishful thinking. I would venture to say that there's plenty of us in this room tonight for whom the the good news of the gospel sounds like it might actually be too good to be true. Or maybe there was a time where you felt like John the Baptist and you were fully convinced of the truth of the Christian message, but now you're not so sure. You have more questions than answer. You have more uncertainty than confidence. We sort of live in this interesting moment where it seems like there's a lot of people who've grown up in the church who are feeling that way. A lot of people who are growing more and more uncertain about whether Christianity is true or whether what they understood to be Christianity is true. There are conferences, there's podcasts, there's books. There's no shortage of people who are wrestling with these crises of faith, these deconversion experiences, this deconstruction where they say, I know I believed all this, but I don't know what I think anymore. And it's easy to feel like this is a uniquely Christian phenomenon. There's a lot of people questioning their faith. But what's interesting to me is about 50 years ago, there was a man named Joseph Ratzinger, who now goes by Pope Benedict. 
uh, who wrote a book. It was meant to be an introduction to the Christian faith, and he does it through the lens of the Apostles' Creed, which sometimes we say here as a ministry. And he starts with that first line, I believe in. And he says, before I can go any further, let's just acknowledge the fact that everybody is having a harder and harder time believing in much of anything. He says, Christians are struggling with this. They're struggling to, to really put their flag in the ground. But he says, that's not just a Christian problem. Everybody is feeling this tension. He, he puts it like this. The believer is choked by the salt water of doubt, constantly washed into their mouth by an ocean of uncertainty. But the non-believer is troubled, troubled by doubts about their unbelief. So we all, in some sense, are in these categories. Maybe you're a Christian and you say to yourself, I, I am wrestling with some, some questions about this. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're starting to doubt your doubts. And you're wondering whether this unbelief that you've lived your life by may or may not actually be the right way to live. And maybe there's a third category. Maybe there are people in this room who don't have any doubts. You are convinced of the gospel, but, but let me just say that a life of faith is one that will not be without some doubts. And so it's important tonight that we have a conversation around that. Maybe not because it's what you're experiencing right now, but because it's something that you will at some point or another experience. Or maybe it's because it is something that you're experiencing. I think in our passage this evening, we see how Jesus engages with those who doubt. And so let me read this passage for us and We'll see what God has for us here. It says this in John chapter one, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, but you will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So when we left off several weeks ago, the, the situation in the story of Jesus was that we'd been looking at John the Baptist, and, and John was making this sort of transition in his ministry where he was starting to direct all of his disciples away from himself and pointing them towards Jesus. And so we're told that John had two disciples who were sitting with him one day and Jesus conveniently walks by and he says, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And these two disciples followed Jesus. And so we've moved from the story of John to the story of Jesus calling the early disciples. Now we don't get the name of the two people who followed Jesus who were once followers of John, or the names rather, but most people think that that's Andrew and Peter. These are the earliest disciples. And so now Jesus and Andrew and Peter decide to go to Galilee. And in Galilee, we're told that Jesus finds someone named Philip and says, follow me. It would seem that Jesus actually knows Philip. He didn't just walk into the city and just run into the first person he saw and said, all right, you're gonna follow me. But it seems like there's some sort of background between Jesus and Philip. Maybe they know each other because of mutually being around John the Baptist. We don't really know, but 
regardless of the situation, Jesus says to Philip two words that seem really simple, follow, follow me. And, and Philip, to his credit, seems to drop everything he's doing and oblige. Those two words may sound simple, but they're actually really, really countercultural in Jesus's day. Because there's not just one rabbi in Israel traveling around and teaching things. Jesus is called rabbi, but he's not the only rabbi in town. There's plenty of other people who are experts in theology, experts in the Old Testament who have particular interpretations of it, and they're traveling around and teaching Israel, and they're gathering disciples to themselves. But for all of these other rabbis, they never, at least with very rare exception, do they ever actually go find their own disciples. What actually normally happens is what happened earlier with Jesus. Two people walk up to Jesus and they say, we want to follow you. That's normally how the rabbi-student relationship goes. And then sometimes, I guess the rabbis have a little bit of fun with it and they say, well, you can't follow me. And they see if the person will follow him for like two or three days. And if they do, then they're like, you passed the test, which is a little sadistic. But it's, it is almost unheard of for a rabbi to actually seek someone out and say, I want you to follow me. It's always people coming to them. We sort of have like a, a modern example of this in the university system. Unless you are really, really good at sporting or really, really smart, the chances are that you, your university didn't reach out to you and say, hey, we really want you to come attend here. Or maybe you're just smarter than me. That did not happen to me. <laughs> no, instead, you, you have to declare your intent. You have to fill out an application. And then they ask for some sort of a deposit, which is just a money grab, and they don't need it. And I'm only a little cynical about that. But in this sort of teacher and student relationship, the universities aren't hunting people down. People are coming to them. It's only very rarely that the opposite is true. And yet for Philip, Jesus actually seeks him out. And he says, you're going to follow me. And that actually, that says something about God. It says something about Jesus. What it says is that God is not waiting for us out there to find him. I think many of us have this idea that God is somewhere out there across, across the vast cosmos and he's, he's left some like breadcrumbs and he hopes that we really find them and figure out where he is and seek after him. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not waiting for people to find him. He's taken the first step. He's taken the infinite step down from heaven to the muck and the mire of human existence. And he's seeking his disciples before they even know that they should be looking for him. That's true in salvation too. Jesus is always chasing after you before you're even looking for him. And so he calls Philip to follow him. And Philip, I'm sure says yes, but John doesn't say that. It sounds like Philip hears that and then he immediately turns and he goes to a man named Nathaniel. And he says to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel asks this question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now that is kind of a sharp statement. And throughout the history of the church, people have tried to find ways to make this sound nicer than it actually is. So like Luther, when he's commenting on this, he's like, what Nathaniel really means is, oh, my dear friend, Philip, can it really be true? What good news? You're like, that's not, how, that's not what this, it's obvious that that's not what this means. Luther has some great things to say. He's wrong on this. Because the fact of the matter is, Nathaniel's just being really sarcastic. Like he's being cynical, he's bitter, 
He does not believe a word that has just come out of the mouth of Philip. He is full of doubt here that that this claim is actually true. And and here's the reality. He has good reason to be. He's not just being some sort of a Pharisee who's rejecting Jesus in spite of all of the evidence. He's not being some hard-hearted, angry person. He, he has some good reasons for not believing Philip. And, and many of those reasons kind of overlap with some of the things that produce doubt in us in our own day and age. One of the reasons why Nathaniel's probably skeptical is just because of plausibility. We, we live in the West that is in a lot of ways haunted by Christianity And so there's all of these small nothing towns in the Middle East that you've heard of that nobody in Jesus's day would have heard of, like Bethlehem. If you talk to anybody in the ancient world, they'd be like, what's that? Among those towns is one called Nazareth. Like you've got a Scottish rock band called Nazareth that was number one on the charts in the 70s or the 80s, but nobody in the ancient world knew what Nazareth was because Baylife's campus is bigger than Nazareth. It was a nothing town maybe the size of a few city blocks. And so when Philip goes to Nathaniel and he says, we found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel's like, I've been there. Nothing good is coming from Nazareth. There's no way that the Messiah is coming from Nazareth. That's a ridiculous thing to say. It's out of touch with reality. And he's not wrong. It is a pretty strange claim. But for many of us, we feel that tension too when we hear the claims of the gospel. Uh, no doubt there have been times where, where even I have sat in this room and heard us and sang songs about the resurrection and said, but dead people don't come back to life. This, this really is a bold claim. And maybe you felt that tension too. Is it, is it really true? That seems pretty radical. There's other reasons why Nathaniel is probably skeptical. Another one of them is cultural. What we know from a little bit later on in the gospel is that Nathaniel is from Cana and Nazareth and Cana hated each other. There was, there was sort of this feud between these two cities. So I don't know of like, I, I don't know of two feuding cities in Florida, but maybe like Tampa and St. Pete. There's like a, a friendly tension. And, and so if somebody comes to someone in Tampa and says, God was born in St. Pete, you go, I've been there. God's not going to be born in St. Pete. <laughs> or vice versa. Somebody says to someone in St. Pete, God was just born in Tampa. They go, that makes sense because Tampa's the greatest city in the whole world. <laughs> no, there's, there's this sort of cultural rivalry where the claim, the Messiah was just born in Nazareth. Nathaniel's like, I hate Nazareth. I don't, I don't even want to visit Nazareth. There's no way the Messiah was born there. But the biggest tension for Nathaniel is probably the biggest tension for us. It's the Bible itself. Because here's what Nathaniel knows as a good Jew in the first century. The Old Testament doesn't say very much about the Messiah being born in Nazareth. It says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Nathaniel hears the Messiah is from Nazareth. And he goes, that doesn't line up. Nothing good comes from, I've been to Nazareth. I know what it's like. It's a nothing town. On top of that, it doesn't really make sense of this book that I've been reading. Of course, at this point, Nathaniel and Philip don't know the rest of Jesus's story. They don't know anything about the virgin birth. They don't know anything about the, the events that led to Jesus 
moving to Nazareth and being raised there, but not having been born there. All they know is that this guy's from Nazareth. And that biblical tension, that's one that I'm sure a lot of us feel. And maybe there are parts of the Bible that you look at and you're like, I just don't know what to do with this. Like, I don't know how, how what I see in the Old Testament reconciles with what I see in the New Testament. Or maybe there's parts of the Bible that you look at and you're like, this just doesn't make any sense. And there is this tension that you feel. Certainly I've felt. Nathaniel in many ways is all of us at some point or another in our Christian lives. His questions are our questions. His response more often than not is our response. This sounds too good to be true. This doesn't make any sense. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with a friend who has questions about faith, how you respond to those questions. Because I can tell you that there's an impulsive reaction to want to silence those and stifle those. Who are we to question God? You just got to have faith. None of that is actually how Philip responds though. Philip hears Nathaniel cynical, can anything good come from Nazareth? Venomous, angry, doubt-filled statement. And his only response is, come and see. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't plug his ears and say, no, 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 I'm not listening. He says, I hear everything you're saying. Why don't you come and see? And that phrase, come and see, is actually not something that Philip just sort of made up. That was something that rabbis in Philip's day often did. When somebody asked them a particularly difficult question, they would respond with, come and see. It was sort of this ancient way of saying, you've asked some good questions. Let's figure that out together. I hear what you're saying. There's validity to it. I think there's answers. Why don't we go discover whether or not what I've just said is true? It's an invitation to a conversation. And so he says, Come and see. And so together they go to see Jesus. Here's what's so fascinating to me about this, because I talk to people constantly who are walking through doubt, not sure what they believe anymore. And this is almost always the pattern. I'm going to take a step away from the church. I'm going to take a step away from organized religion. I'm going to figure out what I think. And then once I've done that, I'm going to come back. But that's not what Philip tells Nathaniel to do. Nathaniel goes, this sounds crazy. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. I don't believe you. And he goes, why don't we go talk to Jesus about that? Rather than taking a step back and figuring it out on his own, rather than saying, well, I'll send you some interesting apologetic documents. Have you read Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ? No. Um, He says, let's go see. Why don't we bring these questions to the feet of Jesus? Let's see if there's answers to it. I'm inviting you with all of your questions to come into the presence of Jesus. I'm not asking you to solve them and then go meet with Jesus. I'm asking you to bring them to Christ, which is so different from how we normally handle this sort of thing. Because when we wrestle with doubt, the way that we respond to that is through stifling it and silencing it and hiding it. But let me just say, ignoring is not the path to redeeming. And hiding is not the path to wholeness. So Philip responds to all of Nathaniel's skepticism with an enormous amount of grace. You know, my, my Nathaniel moment came probably eight months into me pastoring this ministry. Um, I went to USF, studied religion. Most of my professors weren't Christians. They explained in very forceful terms why they were not Christians. And in my mind, I was like, ah, that's silly. And then... Two years out of college, I was like, 
I don't have answers for all those questions. And I said, I'll figure it out later. I won't worry about it. And they kept coming back and they kept coming back. And then they did this really cool thing where they sort of interacted with my anxiety because I just worry about things constantly. And so those questions started to cycle in my mind. And the fact that I didn't have answers to those questions produced more questions and more questions. And I never told anybody that this was happening. And I just sort of medicated it with Netflix and checkers fries, (laughs) which was actually really terrible. (laughs) But I went through this massive crisis of faith in 2014 to the point that I distinctly remember sitting on my couch covered in checkers fries, (laughs) having just eaten my doubts. And it was three or four o'clock in the morning and I couldn't sleep because in my head I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't have answers. I have more questions than answers and I have to preach tomorrow. And I don't know what I'm going to say. And in my total desperation, I just decided I'm going to email the smartest Christian I can think of. And so I found on St. Andrews University the email address for a New Testament theologian named N.T. Wright, who is a a controversial figure, but undisputably brilliant. And I sent him this email and I said, you don't know me, I've never met you. I read one of your books one time for school. Don't live in Scotland, don't go to your university. I'm falling apart, can you please help me? And it was like a six or seven paragraph just rant that I sent to him. Like, I don't, I don't know what I believe. I have all these doubts. I think I believe, but I'm just, I am struggling massively. And I ended it with something like, this isn't even really a question. Like, I'm not, I don't even know that I'm asking you anything, but I really need help. And if you've got anything, I'd be, I'd be grateful for it. And like two hours later, I received one of the most gracious responses to, to the, the crisis of doubt, this brilliant invitation to come and see. Uh, paragraph after paragraph of, listen, I'm so sorry that you're struggling with this. I'm so sorry to hear about your troubles. These are valid questions. These are important things that you're asking, but I want you to know that I think that there's answers to them. And, and from afar, I can't help you. What you really need is a pastor that you can sit down and talk with. And I was like, I am a pastor. What do I do? <laughs> I didn't say that. I thought that. But it was this warm, quietly confident response to my inner emotional turmoil. And it was exactly what I needed to hear because it wasn't what's wrong with you. It wasn't how dare you ask these questions. It was come and see. You're asking good questions and I think there's good answers. And one of the things that he said in that letter was, The crucified and risen Christ is the center of all that we believe. Day by day, bind that to your heart and pray for strength to live by it. I'm inviting you to come and see Jesus, even in the midst of all of your questions. And this is exactly what Philip does with Nathaniel. This is exactly what we should do with our friends as they wrestle with doubt. This is exactly what we should do in our own struggles with doubt as we ask questions Don't ask them in a void. Don't ask them in a vacuum. Don't ask them in the darkness of your room in the middle of the night. Ask them in the presence of Jesus, in the community of faith among brothers and sisters. And so Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus. We're told in verse 47 that Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him. And he said to him, behold, 
an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So from afar, Jesus sees Nathanael walking towards him. And this is the point at which Jesus can say any number of things. I don't know if you've read the rest of the gospels. Jesus is really cool with saying really harsh things. He's really cool with dropping the hammer on people who are walking in sin or rebellion or unrepentance. Jesus is harsher than I even feel comfortable being, which probably says something about my sensitivity levels that it's out of sync with Jesus. But what does Jesus say to Nathaniel who's so full of doubt? You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Maybe a time and place to say that. What's wrong with you? How, how dare you think these things? Don't you know I'm God? Who are you to ask these questions? And Jesus sees Nathaniel walking up to him and he says, here's someone who's honest. Here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That is so profoundly encouraging, or it ought to be. If you're in this room struggling with questions or if some point in your Christian life, you find yourself struggling with questions, or maybe you don't even consider yourself a, a Christian, but you've got a lot of questions. Because what that says is that your doubts are not something that should be sorted out apart from Jesus for fear of him condemning you, but rather they are to be brought into his presence where answers can be found. And he is okay with that. He sees Nathaniel with all of his cynicism and all of his skepticism. And he says, you're one of the honest ones. And Nathaniel has no idea who Jesus is. He says, how do you know who I am? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Here's the astounding thing. Nobody has any idea what Jesus is talking about. I read a lot of commentaries this week. And everybody basically says, it could be this, but we have no clue. And these are the people who have really strong opinions about every verse in the Bible. They have no idea what to do with this fig tree line. They just go, obviously Nathaniel knows, but we have no idea what Jesus is referring to. Here, here's what's astounding about that though. As soon as Nathaniel hears that, his entire demeanor changes. He says, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I'm following you. Here's what's so fascinating about that. Jesus's response, I saw you under the fig tree, has nothing to do with any of the questions that Nathaniel's asking. Jesus doesn't go, hey, listen, Nazareth's not as bad as you thought it was. He doesn't say, I'm actually from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. He doesn't say, I've been to Cana of Galilee and it's way worse. He doesn't point to the, the, the parts in the Old Testament that seem to allude that somehow the Messiah will be related to Nazareth in, in some sort of a way that he'll be called a Nazarene. He doesn't do any of that. He says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel shifts his entire demeanor. Here's, here's the danger I will say about bringing your doubts to Jesus. Is that what you might find is what you think to be the source of your doubts are not actually the source of your doubts. What you might find in bringing your doubts to Jesus is that they're not rooted in what you think they are. They're not as logical as you might think them to be. They probably cut a lot deeper than even you yourself realize. And that's what Jesus recognizes in Nathaniel. You've got all these questions about where I'm from, but here's what you really need to hear. 
not a defense of my genealogy, not a, an apologetic for my hometown. You need to know that I saw you in this particular moment that nobody understands except for you. And Nathaniel falls apart essentially when he hears that. And Jesus says this to him, and maybe this is worth concluding on. He says, you, because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, but you'll see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What Jesus is saying here is a direct reference to uh, what Reese and Lydia read for us during worship. Joseph falls asleep in the book of Genesis and he has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a ladder going from earth to heaven and heaven has been opened and God is sitting at the top of it. And the angels are ascending and descending on the ladder. And here's what Jesus says. The meeting place between heaven and earth, it's not the ladder, it's me. Here's what's astounding about that. Nathaniel comes to Jesus with his doubts. And so often what we think when we walk through doubt is that this is the beginning of our faith falling apart. That this is, this is us reaching this point of no return where we're never gonna be as confident as we were before. And we're always gonna have to live with questions. And there's certainly a sense in which faith is always plagued by questions. But here's what Jesus says to Nathaniel when Nathaniel comes to Jesus with his doubt. This is the beginning of you believing more in me, not less. You're about to see more of who I am, not less. In coming to me with your questions, you are stepping into something deeper than before, not something more shallow. You were impressed that I'd seen you under the fig tree. You'll see heaven opened. And that ladder that Jacob saw in his dream, you'll find out that it's me. The same is true for you and I. Doubt is not the end of faith. But when we come to Jesus, when he meets us there, he invites us to a deeper faith than we ever thought possible. So my prayer for you, whether you don't know what you believe or unsure about what you believe, or maybe you are totally confident in what you believe. My prayer for you is that you would bring all of these things to Jesus and that you would see heaven opened as he meets with you in the midst of those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're not threatened by the questions that we might ask. God, we thank you uh, that you are more than enough to handle them. God, we thank you that even as we ask questions, when we bring these to Jesus, we find ourselves drawn into a deeper love and confidence in you. Lord, we pray. We pray that we would be people like Philip who are urgent to see our friends brought to Christ. That, that we would also be a people like Philip who are patient with questions, knowing that there are answers in Jesus. Lord, we ask that when we come to our dark nights of the soul, where we have questions, where we don't know what to do, that we would not doubt away from you, but towards you. That we would bring these things to one another here in this community, in this church, in our small groups, in our friends, among our friends. Lord, that we would bring these doubts into the presence of Christ and that you would meet with us and strengthen us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.